Hello and welcome to another episode of the Viva Bastardo show brought to you by the Haggerty Podcast Network. Today I am super excited to have a chat with Jeff Zwart. Uh, if you haven't heard of him, he's a legendary automotive photographer. He's been shooting Porsches and all sorts of extraordinary races uh, for 30 years at least. He also happens to have done Pikes Peak uh, 10 or 11 times. He's driven every single car on the planet. He owns a 904. He's owned incredible Porsches. We just have a great, great conversation. So let's get into it. The pressure is on, Jeff. Have oh, you... man, you know, I've never, <laughs> done, never done one of these before. Uh, I, know, so <laughs> I know. I mean, this is your first interview, man, and it's a big deal. <laughs> I, I, I maybe prepare. Have you prepared some zingers? Just, you know, uh, I'm, I have researched all night long. And let me say your <laughs> Wikipedia page is very short. You know, <laughs> you know, what's actually depressing, man, is I re was researching you and I realized that you and everything you've done your entire life is just totally depressing to me. Because, good, good. because you, I'm here for. <laughs> you are here to depress Phil because yeah. you've led this kind of magical, like if you sat down, if you're a, a car fiend as a youth, like at 15 years old, you said, you know, what? I want to have a life that's just full of cars. And, and I'm, a, you know, I was a photographer, I'm a photographer. So, so yeah. if I wanted to design that life, it would have been your life. So Jeff Swart, <laughs> give me your life. <laughs> uh, well, I have been very fortunate and, uh, you know, I think uh, so often things come back to your parents. And honestly, my dad being a mechanical engineer and specializing in plastics and always interested in cars and my mom being a school teacher. So, you know, I had to be good in the education side and, and figure that part out. But, you know, it was it, it just it was a life that was motivated by cars, but I didn't know what to do with it exactly. And uh uh, it really was, uh, and I, I've told this story before, but you know, it's kind of a, what I thought this was your first <laughs> interview. <laughs> I know, I know, but, but you know, it's funny. I chose photography to be around cars, not because I loved photography, you know, it was really my <laughs> way to be around cars because when I looked at the landscape of cars and racing in particular, there just wasn't anything I could really figure out I could do in it. I couldn't drive. I couldn't be a mechanic. I couldn't, you know, be a team manager or things like that. But yet there were these photographers that were always in the face of the drivers and, and around the cars and everything. So I really chose photography because of that. And then, you know, that age old, you know, do things that you really love, you know, it really hasn't been a career. It's just been a nonstop passion. And, and fortunately, the categories I landed in photography and filmmaking was so heavily car oriented, but not just car oriented, high action cars. And so that side of it um, has been a really great thing. Did to you live start through. off? You, you didn't start off wanting to focus on minivans then? No, I was going to Art Center College of Design in the gas crisis. I mean, <laughs> right. I was, I right. was lining up at the gas stations for literally an hour before I'd leave for school, just to be able to get to the pump and be able <laughs> right. to drive to school. And there were times where they'd run out of gas at that gas station and you drive some places. And it seems bizarre to think of now, but that's what, that's the life. We, that we, it was we should, before we get any further, we should actually explain to people, uh, who you are and what you <laughs> and what you do it's usually okay. it's usually traditional to start at the beginning of course i'm you know harebrained but so jeff's what 
Ella. <laughs> do you want you do you want to do? I feel or do you? I I, I mean I could just you. I feel like you'd be better <laughs> somehow. I, you know, I'd like to hear what you say, and then I can fill in the blanks. You know. <laughs> Uh, now on the spot. Well, you, you've been, you're an extraordinary car photographer and a film director. Uh, uh, actually, funnily enough, I first heard your name when I was working at Fallon in the, okay. in, in the late 90s. And Fallon had the Porsche account. Fallon was an ad agency, a very good ad agency. I used to be an advertising and art director. But you've been shooting cars and, as you said, performance stuff, performance cars for decades now. Uh, a lot of stuff with Porsche and then also irritatingly you're an amazingly good driver and you've done Pike's Peak which just the name of it makes me like you know soil my trousers slightly <laughs> so you've, you've 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 covered both sides you've had this extraordinary career as a photographer of cars you've been around cars and then you participate in all these incredible car events was that sufficiently laudatory was that <laughs> that's, that's good enough yes that, and you're that, a very is. charming man <laughs> Well, we don't know that yet. <laughs> <laughs> I've just read on the internet. <laughs> well, that's good. But I, I uh, yeah, I mean, that's the the short version of my course is basically that I, you know, chose photography, that I went to a, a photography school because I knew nothing about it, which happened to be Art Center College of Design. And nicely, nice kind of parallel in co- Art Center is the fact that there is a very strong transportation design department. So all the greats in transportation design really come out of Art Center for the most part. And so one floor away was photography and, and transportation design. So I was always hanging out with the transportation design guys guys about their cars and everything. So that that part was was really fun. And when I graduated from Art Center, my highest aspiration at the time was someday to shoot something for Road and Track magazine. And uh, in a year out of Art Center, I got my first assignment from uh, Road and Track, and I I was shooting a cover for my first assignment, which was a very very uh, daunting. Uh, Were you task. terrified? I, sorry. Were you terrified? I was terrified. You know, it was just such a big deal because, like, I had always dreamed of doing something for them, but I somehow didn't think that I would be starting with a cover. So I had a, uh, I had a vaguely similar experience. My first assignment was. Um, the New York Times magazine and I and I was a complete disaster. I'd seen them like on the Friday and then they called me on a Monday for a job and then I did the job and I like forgot equipment and I couldn't remember what to do. It was it was full panic stations. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really true. And I mean I th- that was kind of the way the craft was, you know, you'd pair and everything and the night before a shoot, I was always up all night worrying about it, thinking about it, whether we had all our equipment and everything. And Extra was, batteries. <laughs> yeah. Well the, and the photography, well Photography at that time didn't even require batteries. Well, for the you light know, meters, for the for the flash yeah. synchro thing, the, all the wizards, yeah, you know, all that it stuff. Was, but it, it was a very, um, the craft, as you know, I mean, you came up in it too. It didn't have the safety net right. that it does now. Right. It didn't have that ability to see immediately what you're shooting and, you know, hold it in your hand and look at it and, and right. examine it and blow it up and everything. It was based on 36 exposure rolls of film, you know, Kodachrome even. And Kodachrome had such a small latitude, a small window to operate in when it was perfectly exposed and perfectly focused and and all those kind of things. That was, it was such a fragile, um, you know, event to go into every day and then to try to make a living off of it. I think there was a, I feel feel like when you were shooting, when, when we were shooting film, 
there was a kind of a, a strange poetry to it because you had to have, you would take a Polaroid maybe if you're in studio, but otherwise you had to have this kind of internal dialogue with yourself about what was happening, what you were shooting. And because you weren't like seeing what you were shooting, as you said, you just, it was this kind of, it was this discussion you had in your mind about what you were doing, how it was working, what angles you, you it was a, mo- a much more interior process, I, I felt, really. Yeah, and and I was shooting high action, so it wasn't something you even bracketed on. You know, yeah. you you shot one exposure. And, it, you know, still to this day, I go back to the little uh, paper that came inside the roll of film you bought at Kodak that said, on a bright sunny day with the sun over <laughs> your shoulder, it's one twenty-fifth of a second at f eleven, you know, and that was Kodachrome sixty-four. And I still have that as like my baseline, one twenty-fifth of f eleven, you know. And, and you know that doesn't matter at all today. But it, it's funny. I walk outside, you know. I just look at stuff. That's one twenty-fifth of f eleven. You know. <laughs> I feel like this should be a T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> nobody would get it <laughs> right well photographers would get it so now i was as i was stalking you online as one does um i, I did is am i right in remembering that your dad had a 906 a porsche 906 or 904 or is that what you no, bought you have i have a 906 but my father had a 901 okay that's and that right meant it was the first uh of about 75 911s built his was actually a chassis number 35. Do you still have that? No. Well, that's a sad story (laughs) all around, but you know, it was funny. My dad wanted, he had a 356. And then when the 911s came along, he really couldn't afford a 911. And so finally, in I think 1968 or 67, he found a really old 911. (laughs) Well, now technically they'd only been out for like a year and a half, (laughs) but was this 911 he found that was built in 1964 and it was being sold cheap and he bought it and we didn't have you know you didn't follow chassis numbers then you know you don't think about those kind of things it was just an old 911 and my dad was very proud of it and he did work it. he was a plastics engineer he put seven inch 911 r wheels on it but they were so wide that he had to put mud flaps on it so he brought plastic home from work and made mud flaps you know it's just like <laughs> this is just what he's doing he's living with his car but along the way we were at riverside raceway one day and uh he met a guy and this guy said oh i've got an early 911 you know it's um it's uh chassis number um 19 or 29 something like that and my dad goes, wow, that's interesting. You know, I wonder how old ours is. And then he looked it up and we started realizing that it was a really old 911. And at that point, they were just starting to focus on the beginnings of 911s. And there was this 901 thing where the first nine 911s were 901s. And that was what he had. That's what I learned to drive in. And ultimately in the mid seventies, I think he sold it. And, you know, it was crazy for what he sold it for, you know, considering that would be a million dollar car today. Right. And it was sold to Seattle, to somebody in Seattle. And then it was eventually, uh, it was stolen up there. And in those days when cars were stolen, they were cut up for their parts and everything. The, the car was never recovered. And so um, funny enough, as things go today, uh, Road and Track did a story three or four years ago on me uh, of some other subject, but I mentioned the chassis number 35 that my dad owned and all that sort of thing. But, and somebody went down and researched it all. He got totally in it. He's going to find this car and actually went to the widow 
of the guy who had bought it for my dad and confirmed that it was stolen and never recovered. Oh, I, so, I thought they were going to say they found it buried in, you know, in the uh, backyard. It, or, that's, <laughs> my, that's my big fear is that, you know, I'd love to find the first car I ever drove, you know, or that kind of thing. And, what and, was the first car you ever drove? Well, I mean, it would have been the pickup truck on my grandparents' farm, you know, like it was a probably a 57 International Harvester pickup oh, truck. Fantastic. It was red. And I used to drive it, you know, because I was probably 12 or 13 and I would drive it out to the hay fields and bring stuff to the guys and then drive back to the farm and stuff. But that would you, was would you the get first the, Would you get the tail out a little bit? Just some, uh, uh, some I don't early... remember that. <laughs> <laughs> there were tail out moments early on in my uh, life. I did spin my dad's 901, the 911, in uh, my high school parking lot. And I just remember the two things converging. It stalled when I spun it. I was trying to start it, and the security man was driving towards me in the golf cart. <laughs> I was trying to get it started before he got to me. Wait, was this an intentional spin or an accidental spin? Accidental spin, showing <laughs> your friend. Spins and literally in the middle. And so, uh, fortunately, the things didn't collide, and I was able to move on before security got to me. But that was my, I do know for a fact that was the first time I've spun. So. I have a very clear memory of the first time I spun. It's actually, it was a 964, and I was on an off-ramp, curving off-ramp in the rain, and I knew nothing about anything. And it, it, I knew, and I lifted off, changed down, downshifted in the rain on the curved off-ramp, and then just found myself doing this kind of Barishnikov triple Lundy off into the mud. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, yeah. It's 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 funny because I always loved driving a car that moved under me. that was loose, and I could drive more like rally style. Even though I didn't even know much about rally style, I just knew I liked that feeling. I remember. I've never talked about this, but my I was given a press car in my road and track days, a BMW three series, and to drive to Monterey for some road test going on up there. And I thought along the way, I went and visited my friends in San Luis Obispo and we, I said, oh, we got to go on the back roads, the dirt roads. And we stuffed that car off the edge of the road. And I, it was literally two wheels on the downside and two wheels on the upside. And it was so precarious. It was sitting on its under tray. And I was like, I was just saw whole, my whole career flashing before me. And ultimately <laughs> some guy came along with a pickup truck and he towed us out of it. But it was just like, you know, you just... It's when you get in trouble and you have no way out and you realize that this was, you know, not a good idea from the very start. It, it's <laughs> interesting what you talk about, um, the idea of, of the road moving around you. Cause I, I, my wife paid for me to have a skip barber, like five day class, you know, open cockpit driving, whatever. And, and I was both shit scared and depressingly bad. And I was so sad. I thought, I felt I had this sort of innate driving skill and I had none, <laughs> but it <laughs> was a really sad moment in my life. But then I did this, this, uh, rally driving course up in uh, New Hampshire. I think it was, um, Tim O'Neill's course. What's that? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, I raced with Tim O'Neill. He's oh, been, uh, for years we raced against each other. So. Oh, but well, what was, what you were saying, man, that was so ex I really loved the way the way I felt the car move around and the way that, uh, and learning how to sort of control the car when it was moving around. I found that so interesting and, and exhilarating. Yeah, no, it, it's, you know, it's, it's understanding the car. Like we live on a nine and a half mile winding road. We live at 9,300 feet. We live, you know, way up in the mountains. There's only like 25 houses on this entire road. The greatest days 
are when you wake up in the morning and the road hasn't been plowed and you're driving down it in the middle of winter and it's you know five degrees and there's eight inches of fresh snow on there. And it's so interesting. It doesn't take a lot of speed, but you learn so much about the dynamics of the car. You know, modern cars are just tenacious at bringing cars to straight and getting the traction down and everything. And it's just, it's unbelievable to start to feel how cars take on control and, and do things. And so I love living past that point, you know, and living in a, in old car world or places where you turn off the nannies and, and just be able to drive on throttle and feel the car move underneath you. And you know, that feeling when you're rallying, you, you want to be centered in the car, not necessarily physically, but the way it feels. So you're super aware of when the front's pushing or the rear's sliding or things like that. And you're super aware of the quarter. So when you move the car around, you're doing the dance through the throttle and through the steering wheel and just gentle inputs and things to catch it. And I love the magic of that. And I mean, part of the reason why I think I ended up at Pike's Peak was because of Ari Vatman and, the, you know, that climb dance film, because it was just so spectacular to watch a human being push a car up a mountain as fast as they did in the in the dirt. And that was just so inspiring to me. Let's talk about let's talk about Pike's Peak for a minute, because that's sort of the 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 grail, I guess, really, in some ways of, of, of hill climbs. I mean, this is I don't think there's anything that's more unhinged than, than, Pike, than Pike's Peak. How did you how did you start doing? How do you do that? How did you when was the first one? Um, well, interestingly, I went to Pikes Peak to cover it for Road and Track magazine, and it was in the the Botman days and Rod Millen and every, all these kind of inspiring guys racing up there. And when I was there, it was just clear to me I need to figure out how to do this someday. And I'd done some road racing, and I loved I loved anything I could do racing. I just didn't have a means to get there and and to figure out how to do it. So. Um, when Pikes Peak came along, I uh, in 1989, I ran there for the first year, but I was also running in the U.S. Pro Rally Championship. And the interesting thing about the Pro Rally Championship was that I, my one of my best friends was Rod Millen, who's the national champion, Asia Pacific champion. He's done everything rallying. He's multiple, you know, 15 time champion, probably at Pikes Peak. He's just done everything. And he also was a race shop that did you know, modifications and modif brought cars to become rally cars. Well, he was my main precision driver in, in all the things we shot at Fallon, let's say, Rod Millen drove on it. It was always that kind of uh, relationship where he was driving everything sideways for me, everything high performance. And we were just best friends. And, and inevitably at lunchtime or on the way home from a shoot, we'd be in rental cars together and we'd be hammering down roads and everything. And, you know, both he and his brother, Steve, who also was a very accomplished racer, both kept saying, you know, you guys, you are really a good driver. You know, you should really do something with it. And finally, Rod. No one has ever said that Steve. to me. <laughs> so, uh, Rod said, to me, he goes, I'm, let's build you a rally car. And I, I was like, oh, well, you know, let's do that. And so uh, he was running with Mazda at the time. So I, I had him build a Mazda 323 GTX, which is a cool little hatchback four-wheel drive car. and and um, I started rallying and then the moment I started rallying, I just said, this is, this is it. You know, I, I am having so much fun. And, and in 1990, it's very rare that you have an experience where you, where 
I've found that I probably encounter one hand the amount of times you've had the this is it experience where you know that this something is made for you. Yeah, it's it really it really is because your life evolves a lot, you know, along the way and you don't really even notice what's right anymore. You don't have the core feelings of things. And so I just, you know, in 1990, I tied for the national championship. I won the open class national championship. And that was also the same time that uh, Carrera 4 came along, the four-wheel drive Porsche from from the Perry Dakar program. So I said, it would be so cool to do what I'm doing in rallying in a Mazda to do it in a Porsche. So two years, took two years to kind of put it together, but we built a 964 Carrera 4 rally car with full Perry Dakar running gear. The Porsche factory got behind it. Jurgen Barth got behind it. I was allocated all of the diffs and the drivetrain and everything from the Perry Dakar program. So there was a car that maybe you knew about, but in in the 91 or 92, I think Porsche built a Carrera 4 lightweight. They built just 20 of them and they were an all wheel drive car, but they were obviously just for Europe. And at the time, well, I was allocated all those parts. So we built a Carrera 4 rally car. And so in 93, I started rallying that. And then in 94, I started winning a few rallies along the way. And Porsche and I got together, Porsche Motorsport North America and Andile, who was kind of the the working part of that relationship. We decided that if I could run Pikes Peak, that would be a cool thing to do for 1994. So they loaned me from the IMSA program a 550 horsepower single turbo motor, put that into my rally car that had had 300 horsepower for two years for me and sent me up the mountain in a Carrera 4. And I won that year. And I last year... The how, last how did you prepare year, for that, though? How does one prepare for Pikes Peak? I mean, do you just run the mountain in, at, at, at normal speeds endlessly? Yeah, it's, um, it's very difficult to uh, learn. Uh, it's 156 turns. It's 12 and a half miles. So it's very uh, tricky to actually learn the place in a week and then go race. And it's divided up in thirds for practice. So the only day that you actually run the whole mountain is on race day. You practice a third, you practice a third, you practice third, then you qualify, and then you race. Well, I can equate it to like Nürburgring. Nürburgring is about 20K, so it's about 12 miles. And Pikes Peak is 12 and a half miles. So imagine doing three or four laps at Nürburgring and then start the race. That's okay. <laughs> that's basically <laughs> what happens, and, and um, so and you know you ask how I prepare, but in '94 I wasn't prepared that well because um, I had left off in 1989 and hadn't raced at Pikes Peak since then, and you're in a danger zone there when you think you know what what where you are on it when you think you really know the place. And I came in in '94 and I thought I knew where I was and how I was going. And that that car was so crazy fast, 550 horsepower, single turbo, all wheel drive, this crazy car that was breathing fire. And I came into a section and three things simultaneously went through my mind. This is picnic ground. This is not picnic ground. And (laughs) uh, this is the earliest I've ever gotten in the fifth gear. And I flew off the road. So it just was, one of those things where simultaneously three things went through my mind 
and they all added up to me flying off the road. <laughs> it wasn't at all in picnic ground. So it was, it was just. Now, presumably funny. picnic ground is a, as a, as an, as a part of the track that everyone knows. Yeah, and, okay. Yeah. And it literally is, it's a big sweeping left into a long straightaway and that's picnic ground. And you always know it and you want to leave your foot down as you go through that left. So my head was saying, this is picnic ground. This is the earliest I've gone in the fifth gear in the picnic ground. And then this is not picnic ground. <laughs> and then <laughs> I am off the road. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and it just happened like that all at once. And so we uh, fortunately put the car back together after flying off in the trees and it didn't look good the next day, but it ran well. And in the end, I won open class that year. And so this year I was back at Pikes Peak for my 19th time. And uh, I've been there uh, now in 13 different Porsches for 19 years and uh, won their uh, eight championships. And are you not, are you not afraid? I mean, just the idea of it, man, when you see the helicopter footage and the, and yeah. the, the precipices, the, 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 the drops involved, it, I mean, you, how does that work? It, it, it is, you know, I don't think about what's over the edge sure. and, you know, as you would it, in Daily driving, you want to stay on the road. <laughs> and, you know, but there is no. This is the Jeff Swart insight to driving. <laughs> stay on the road. <laughs> stay on the road. But, but you may drop a wheel off occasionally, but just don't send two or three off. So, but I now coach for Porsche Motorsport too. And it, if anything, I'm in my fifth year of coaching and I have learned so much by coaching because I constantly am, you know, updating what I'm going to describe to people <laughs> and how to race at Pikes Peak. But it's really interesting to watch people because there are people who are really afraid of the place and you see it right away. Even when you're driving them up in passenger car at, at normal speeds, you just see they're not comfortable being on the edge and everything. And I just don't, I don't think twice about it. You know, I, they, I obviously know where the really big drop-offs are and the big exposures, but where picnic just, table is. Sorry. Do you know where picnic table is now? Yeah, I know where that is. <laughs> okay. Believe me, almost every time I turn in there, I give that example to everybody that hey, this is me. I blew this in, in a place that uh, flew off the road, and so you know, you put there is a perspective that way. But what I love about it, when you know it, you drive so far past what you can see. You're turning into stuff, your foot's staying down on the gas, on boost, you can't see around the corner, but you know where you are, you know how it works out. And it's just, it is spectacular. And obviously it comes with a great deal of risk. And, and you know, I always have thought that it's better if I make a mistake than if I have a problem with the car. You know, you, do, you wanna, the last thing you wanna be in is not trusting the car. So sure. then your back of your mind, is this going to fail or is that going to fail? And I certainly don't have that issue to deal with. And so it's, I really recognize it's my mind over this mountain that's going to make me successful here. And I truly believe in a buildup. And the buildup is that even at my level and all these years of being on the mountain, I'm just going to go slow and I'm going to go faster. I'm going to go faster and go faster. I'm going to hit targets along the way, but I'm not going to. If I go up and go fast and then go even and even and even, I'm not doing anything. I'm not learning anything at that point. I want to be able to leave room to go faster every time. But it is it is a spectacular place. The times we've gone up through the clouds and ended up above them or or 
gone through against the weather, which is rain and hail and snow and all sorts of things. It's just, it's so cool. And I equate it a lot to my world of filming is that it is definitive. You know, it's like when you and I go out and shoot on location, the sunset is definitive. It's at 6.42 this evening and I've got to be done. You know, there's no coming back. It doesn't work that way. And that's the way it is at Pikes Peak. You get one run. There's no pit stops. There's no team strategy. There's no, there's nothing other than you just put on your blinders, you drive to everything you know, and you go as fast as you possibly can. It's so get- unlike the rest of life. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. because, because so little, so, so little is definitive, really. Like, but, but you're talking about like what you're talking about is, is, is so singular and, and it involves so many of your senses and so much of your cerebral power. It must be, it must be, what does it feel like when you finished? Like the moment you finished, what does that feel like? Or is that a stupid question? <laughs> you can no, tell me it's, it's a stupid it's question. Pretty, I mean, there's two things that are going on in your mind. One is, could I have done anything better? <laughs> and then the other is, I'm glad that's over. <laughs> you know, because, because <laughs> you know, you really do put it online. I mean, my wife's been to every one of the races I've been to, and she's a, a nervous wreck. And, you know, and my team is all concerned about the car and all these things. There's so much bundled up. I'm now, you know, when I first started racing there, I was 12 and a half minutes, plus or minus 15 seconds. I'm now one of the few people under 10 minutes. You know, it's gotten exponentially faster. It's I like could do that. I could it. do that, Jeff. <laughs> I'm sure you could. <laughs> we should have your wife on. I would love to talk to her about the sheer terror. <laughs> it would be amazing. She, oh, she's she's definitely. Uh, uh, it's gotten uh, pretty old of going there. <laughs> <laughs> she'll just watch it on. She'll watch it on on the replay. Yeah. yeah, but but getting to the summit, it is really special but the first thing i always go through my mind is just where could i have made a little more time things like that but there's such an exhilaration and i think that that's the reason why so many people come back to the place the amount of people that come every year to race there it's almost like it bring when you face death in a way you are brought together and it is like family and it's like really a cool moment of getting to the summit. And so much effort has been spent that week getting to that point. You know, basically I'm on the mountain for a month to drive for less than 10 minutes. So it's it's a very, you know, it could be totally unrewarding, but it there's something about it that creates a bond to the mountain and everything else because you've gone against the elements. It's a massive place. One of the coolest things is you leave the starting line you turn left around a sweeping left. There's the banner that has the starting line on it. Framed in that banner is the top of the mountain. And it's out there looming as top of the mountain as you come around the corner. Not that you're really looking at it, but the thought that as you rotate it around that corner, there's the mountain. And you're going to be there in less than 10 minutes. It's just crazy. Do you have that thought? <laughs> as you Does that does that? You, you, you're like that cognizant or conscious in a way that you, when you see it, you're like, oh, I'm going to be up there in 10 minutes or you're not really. No, I don't really do that. When I'm, when I'm coaching, you know, you kind of give people perspective all the time. Cause I want them, I want everybody that I'm coaching for Porsche Motorsport. I want them to have a context of, you know, how big and special this place and, and how humbling it is that you're not going to learn it in 
10 minutes, you know, it's, you're going to, you could keep having to roll the movie back through your brain all year long till you come back the next year. It's just, it's so daunting. So I think that side of it is, um, it, I just, in my mind, when I leave the line, I just say attack. I just want to go into everything harder, deeper, that sort of thing. And does that, um, does that sort of, that sort of bloodlust, has that abated or increased as you get older? Um, it's, it's probably found its place. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm, I'm not going to risk all, I have nothing really to prove. I really love racing there. And I have come through the eras of Pikes Peak. I started when it was all dirt. I raced in the middle of my career there when it was half pavement and half dirt. And then I went on to being full pavement. You know, I've gone through all the experiences. And you talk about, you mentioned like that moment where something really feels right to you. I've gone back and I'm running the Colorado Hill Climb Championship here. It's a statewide championship local grassroots but we race up the side of mountains there's six races in the series we race up the side of mountains and it's it's all on dirt and the moment i leave the line and finish my first run i go that's why i do this it just feels so good it reminds me of the beginnings of pike's peak i mean there's something well i guess the 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 thing about well my in my infinitesimal experience is that the difference in the dirt and the tarmac thing is because the dirt is so alive. It's always every, every, like when I, I mean, I feel stupid talking to you about my like five day class versus, you know, you're a, a man who's, you know, one pike's beat, but, but <laughs> allow me, Jeff, if you will, just to compare myself to you. <laughs> but, um, but uh, I don't know, like the, the, it, what I loved was the idea that every time I went around this little rinky dink course, it was different every single time. And that was kind of, and, and, and it was so, and it was really exhilarating that it wasn't the same. And that's yeah. why for me, the tarmac experience was not so exciting because for me, that was a much more clinical experience in terms of, you knew the track was always going to be the same. It was a question of adjusting yourself. Whereas with the dirt stuff, you were kind of adjust, you were reacting to the changing conditions and you were adjusting how you did things from my five days experience. Yeah. <laughs> Allow me to give you some pointers <laughs> no, if I could. <laughs> That's really true, though, because, you know, it's like turn nine at Laguna Seca comes up every minute and 38 seconds, you know, and, and that's just the way it goes. At Pikes Peak, 156 turns, every turn is a new turn. It's everything <laughs> right. new. And the conditions have changed and it could be colder, it could be raining, it could be anything along the way, because it really is a living organism. That It's a mountain that makes its own weather. I mean, you look at the whole range out there and there's this tall mountain 14,115 feet that pokes up at the continental divide that leads into the prairie land which means it's like a vortex generator so the air all comes down the mountains has to hit the edges of pike's peak and it creates weather because of it it's just it's unbelievable the way it is but yeah you're i love the idea that you're also you're proactive in your planning but you're reactionary in all of your adjustments. And I love that contrast. Right. Now, I, I feel I would be remiss not to discuss the, the, the shocking treatment of, the, of all your cars. 
<laughs> because one thing I've, I've owned a bunch of Porsches and I feel like, and I'm probably going to get, I'll, I'll get savage for this, but I feel like uh, Porsche people are, I'm going to just try and be diplomatic. They're a very particular kind of person. You know, they're out with the toothbrush, et cetera, et cetera. So what I love, man, is I've seen some videos. Of you, I mean, and, and what I've seen of you on Instagram stuff is you just, you just, they're just cars. And you, you have a 906, is that what we, or 904? Yes, I did. 906, yeah. which, 906, which is one of the all-time most glorious cars. And you just, you just drive these things around like they're just, they're just cars. And, and it, for most people and for most cars now, they've stopped being just cars. And I don't think that ever stopped for you. No, it really didn't. And I, I treat them, they're my enablers, you know. They take me places, that, and each one takes me places in a different way. And one of the things I, I really like, and I think you mentioned a little bit earlier too, modern cars do nothing to limit you. You can be as cool as you want it with the air conditioning. You can be as accelerate as fast as you want. You can stop as quick as you want. You, there's nothing that dictates your speed. You can do anything you want to. And when I go out in the 1953 Prix you know, I've got the dog in the back. I've got a canoe on the roof. I'm driving along and you're just going as fast as that car can be. Like I said, I live you know, at you know what I love about feet. this whole, you know what I love about this picture, Jeff, is that I've been to car shows like cough, cars and coffee and some guy will show up in a, in a 356 and you have like the skis on the back or whatever it is. And it's all just art direction. But for you, you're actually going, can, you're going canoeing. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. But what I love is, all of a sudden you find your arms on the windowsill, the windows down, and you're just driving as fast as the car is comfortable to go. And it's not very fast. It dictates your speed. And suddenly you get the smells of the, of the season and you get the, you know, you get the air moving around and you get all this stuff that there's, it's dictated your speed in that moment. And I love in the cars that I have, each one gives me a different experience. And it's an experience exactly in the day. And to your point, too, of the cars, the old cars I have, of the 906 doesn't end up on snow tires. But <laughs> everything else has studded snow tires. And I put the, all the snow tires on everything before winter, and everything gets driven in the winter. And I just, that's, you know, there's no secret. In Germany, in Stuttgart, it snows, it rains. They make cars 365 days a year. And, and I've been, I did the commercial about going there with a test driver. They used to put 35 miles on every 911 out driving around. And that was year round. And it was snowing and hailing and doing all that stuff. It's not like when you take delivery on your car, it's the first time it's never been in bad weather. You know? so, <laughs> so I have, to, I, have so, to, I have to ask about the 906 because it's, I, I, oh God, I, I've, that shape is so exquisite just I, look i'm a i'm i'm like a i'm a mechanical village idiot i know nothing about how things work i don't i, I never i just i'm but shapes matter to me and uh, that's such a glorious just design i mean i know it's an incredible car i'm not that clueless but i'd love to hear about it well i agree with you and and you know in in 1967 probably i built a model of a 906 and building that model and kind of holding it in your hand and gluing it together and making it into the shape it is you i fell in love with the shape too it's so pure it's doesn't have any wings or anything on it it's just a smooth shape and and 
you know, it's fiberglass, it's tube frame. It only weighs 1,400 pounds. And, you know, modern cars can replicate almost everything, but they can't replicate lightweight. Right. And the feeling of that being so nimble up on its toes and you accelerate and the rear will dance around a little bit, even though it has 200 horsepower, you know, it just, it does everything, but the nimble nature and the lightweight nature. And then the fact that behind your head is a sheet of fiberglass and then there's an engine, you know, <laughs> there's no, there's a little bit of foil in there that I suppose they call a firewall, but there's no firewall. <laughs> and literally directly behind your head is the, this engine and this engine's a twin plug, six cylinder, two liter. And I love it. So in the winter, you know, some of the coolest views I've ever seen is uh, in the winter, I will try to drive everything regularly. I don't keep anything on a battery tender. You know, if things aren't staying charged, I'm doing something wrong. The car isn't. So <laughs> uh, I, nothing's on a bar battery tender. So if it's a relatively nice day in the winter, it's still freezing ass cold. I will take the 906 for a quick run out on the road. And you fire it up. So I pull it out. It's super cold, as I said. You crank it and you turn the ignition on and it starts to fire. Now in the rear view mirror, it's a little tiny, you know, probably a six inch wide rear view mirror in there. You look straight across the top of the Weber carburetors the blue flames will launch <laughs> out of the top of the carburetor. And the coolest thing is while you're trying to start it and it's kind of got too much fuel, it's getting too rich. And the flames, the blue flames are coming out. They hit that plastic glass in the back and they literally roll. That's amazing. And the visuals is just so cool. And then finally it fires and you spend a good amount of time warming up. But even when you give it a little too much gas, it'll pack in and it'll pop a flame out of there. And it's just like, I'm sitting there going, nobody, nobody can feel what this feels like. This is so cool. Man, that is, that is, utter, that is utterly amazing. Oh, I mean, as he was describing, I was just seeing it. And for some reason, I was seeing like a, like one of those 80s science fiction movies where I don't even know what's happening. It's, uh, so how did you, how did you find that car? When did you get it? Like, were you looking for years? Was it, I mean, clearly it must've been a dream since you made a model of it as a kid. Yeah, it was, um, I looked for a long time, but you know, it kind of like before you look, you have to make enough money to have one. <laughs> right. You know? so, right. So there was that side of it. It took me a long time. I bought a few cool cars along the way, but this was definitely a more expensive car for me to purchase. And it wasn't like practical that it could serve a lot of other needs along the way. And, but I had identified that I wanted, but you know, you're looking at something that there's, you know, just between about 50 or 60 in the world, you know, there's not a lot of choices. And I um, always went to Laguna Seca for the historic races and everything. And I would talk to all the owners, which there'd usually be two or three 906s and, ultimately a broker and an owner and everybody kind of knew I was looking and, and we put together a deal to buy this car. And I bought this car in 1996. So I've had it a long time. And, you know, when I look back on it, you know, now my, my Cayenne costs more than that car, you know, <laughs> when you buy it. but, 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 uh, but, you know, in that day, it was a lot of money for me to spend, but it's definitely a keeper in there because it's just, the experience, and I mean, you've had cars like that too. I mean, I love your taste in cars. I mean, you and I kind of got the same. We uh, have a, we share a, we share a common car. We should talk yes, about we that. Did, we did. <laughs> but, but you know, I I just really 
knew that that would be the right car for me and the and the experience and everything else and so uh it just it was the right time it's i mean i'm you know just add that to another reason why you fill me with rage jeff <laughs> why your entire presence is enraging so we we, we have a so the common the share the car we have in common is the bmw m1 you had a white one yes, yes. which is my favorite yeah. well, color it's funny because i i thought you there, there's a number of things you know it's kind of like when you just listen to somebody talking occasionally and i saw you with magnus and things and so i've you know you kind of drop into your life through your voice and you kept mentioning things like you know oh i know about that i know about that and, and i realized that um you know there's multiple things we've kind of lived parallel lives with one that we both came from photography and two we both owned an m1 and then the other day you don't drink coffee. I don't drink coffee. So, you know, that's like, come on. <laughs> that is, that is actually, that, that is, I feel that that's actually the rarest of all of our coincidences because who doesn't drink coffee? <laughs> I, people go, no, well, you mean you want decaffeinated? No, I don't want decaffeinated. I don't want any coffee. <laughs> okay. Well, that's fascinating. So have you ever had a cup of coffee? No. Oh, well, funny story. I've never had a formal, a real cup of coffee, at least all the way through. Um, but I, I was at Road and Track magazine. I was doing a story at Ferrari, and uh, I went to the Ferrari factory and Mugello and in, in, in Modena. And then uh, we went there, and so I'm at the factory. I show up. I come to the press department, and he says, he says to me, "Oh, Jeff, you know, welcome. I've been there multiple years doing stories for Ferrari." And he goes, "Jeff, you know, I have bad news." He goes, "We're on strike." And I go, you're on strike. He goes, yeah, we can't get a car to shoot to shoot right now. And he and I'm going, well, what do we do? And he goes, well, let's go and get a coffee, and maybe it'll be finished. <laughs> what will be finished? <laughs> oh, the strike will be finished. The strike is finished, <laughs> and, and so we go off. So I'm like, we go across the street to the famous restaurant that you know Enzo used to eat at, and all the drivers ate at. So we're in there, and he goes, so would you like a coffee? And I'm like looking around, I go, I don't want a coffee, but I do, I need to shoot here. And so he showed me, I saw somebody with a very small cup <laughs> and I thought, well, I'll have that <laughs> pointed to that. And it turned, you know, it was basically free basing coffee because it was espresso and, and I did not sleep for days. <laughs> I feel like you don't need any extra additives. <laughs> No, it was like, and if I didn't like coffee, I definitely don't like espresso, but I pounded through it. We came back after that and the strike was over. I shot what I needed to shoot. What was this, like a 20, a 20, like a 25 minute strike? I mean, how? Yeah. Well, it was, it had been on the day before and they were negotiating that morning. And it was so funny because I, I never thought I'd travel. What was, what was the car you were shooting? I believe that was the F50 at the time. Okay. So, would have been the after have you ever owned a Ferrari? No, I have not. I, I will say I really love the idea of them and I've I've driven numbers of them. I personally it's gotta be a V12 and it's front engine car. I just love, you know, I guess I want something that's completely different and a V12 front engine car, a modern, even a modern car would be a really cool car, I think, to kind of just use every day. But I've just never you know, I, I'm so comfortable. I feel like cars are an extension of myself. You know, they, I, I wear them. I, you know, I, like I said earlier, they're my enabler. They, 
They've taken me to the ends of the earth racing, the ends of the earth filming. It's just, it's so cool what cars have done for me. I mean, I feel like I've gotten more out of cars than I've given to cars. I just feel that way. I just feel so connected to them. And there, a car is the least intimidating thing in my life. It just is. It just, it's just that kind of thing. That's a, that's really, uh, that's a beautiful thing actually to hear. Because normally I think, I think that people forget, um, I think particularly now people kind of forget what cars do for them. I think they think about what cars can do. Well, they think about what cars can do for them in terms of, you know, financially or, um, or how they, how it might make them look. Um, but I think that you have a, you're a real romantic in a lot of ways, actually. I would, I, <laughs> I, I maybe your so. wife, maybe your wife would it's disagree. Not, <laughs> it's, 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 it is funny though, because I really do connect with them and I, I love to explore the capabilities of them and really determine the nuances of it. I don't need an old car to drive like a modern car. I want everything to drive in the era. Even my early cars have bias belt, 16 inch wheels on them. So they're little skinny three and a half inch wide tires. So what do you make of the whole, uh, what do you make of the whole resto mod movement then? I love it as an art form. And I love that it has engaged people so well, like what Rod Emery does is absolutely spectacular. And I visit Rod all the time and his eye and artistic values that he brings to each car for clients is so wonderful to watch and watch it play out and everything. And I love the way it engages the customers because the customers really do uh, get involved in the builds out there. And I love all that. And if it brings people to the cars and it's satisfying, that's good. I just, I guess that especially a brand that I've been so connected with from the marketing sense, having the, this expansive view of driving the 50th Porsche built the Gamund, 1949 Gamund, to a 959, to, you know, the most modern things, like I have an ET3, it just gives you the perspective and it, it helps you be able to apply the concepts and you realize what makes a brand, especially when you're as immersed in a brand like Porsche for me, is that you realize the decisions that went into making that Gamund of lightweight materials and aluminum body, of an aerodynamic shape that you can describe with a sweep of your hand, a basically underpowered motor, but a wonderful balance through engineering. You know, that combination of things, if you all those things I just described play out in a modern car at Porsche, right. because you know, Porsche's never had the most horsepower of anybody, but they've always been able to push you forward in a better, more efficient way because of the engineering and then because of the aerodynamics and all that. So I love how you can translate something that happened in 1949 in a sawmill in Austria to something that rolls out at a regular basis out of Zuffenhaus. Well, it's, a, it's an extraordinary continuity of thought that you don't see very much, really. I mean, I can't think of, I mean, maybe I can't think of any other brand that has such a similar that has a similar history that's had the same kind of continuity of thought i mean do you think ferrari still does what they i don't know i'm not i felt i i feel like when enzo was around there was a there was a more of a there was a real emphasis uh, because he was so interested in racing that bled through into the cars they made for the for and and i feel like that i'm not sure that happens anymore 
Yeah, I mean, Porsche obviously has to tick other boxes of sport utility and sedans and now the electrified world that we're living in too. But you look at just the, nothing's existed like a 911. I mean, this is, you know, from 1964 to today, one model still exists. That, right. that says a lot. And the, and the spin-off and the ideals that go into a 911 that also appear in a Taycan or appear in a, a a sport turismo panamera you know it's it's all there and i i've sat in meetings at porsche saying you know we're going to build a cayenne but we're going to give people a porsche driving experience and you go well, how's that going to work and but you spend time in a cayenne over other sport utilities and you realize wow they really did put a more dynamic feel of driving in it at least a feel that as a porsche owner i can really enjoy and utilize to the best so how do you like the electric stuff you know, it's it's been interesting um, <laughs> to start. Well, because well, it it's kind of like you have to strip away the fact that it's an electric car because there's too many other things you bring along with that idea. If you just say, I'm getting in a car to drive from point A to point B, and I'm not going to think about it being an electric car, it's pretty phenomenal because suddenly like the Taycans have a super low center of gravity. You turn in on things and they just go around like they're on rails. That weight of it is made up by all the horsepower it has. It just really can accelerate. It really can stop. And yes, it's silent and there isn't a lot of engagement in terms of shifting and doing things like that, but it's the experience it gives you and the performance that it can ultimately give you is kind of spectacular and for me like i said a car is an enabler for me i'm kind of in awe what i can do with it it's i i wish i could drive it in a way that i could drive 300 miles and i could go to a gas station or electric station and fill up in five minutes you know that part you take some additional planning certainly for me and my days because i i'm a forty thousand mile a year driver and I have been for decades. And so my days go from, you know, a 30 mile day to 900 mile days regularly. You, you know, location scouting, all the things you do, driving to LA and back. I do that all the time from Colorado, all those things, you know, just I'm in a world where wherever I'm going, when my tank's empty, I need to fill it up in five minutes. You know, <laughs> that's kind of the way my life works. So, I found but I am constantly in awe. The 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 I've, I I I find the kind of the animosity towards electric cars a little bit confusing because I've driven a couple, and I'm I mean again I feel so ridiculous talking about my driving experience versus yours, but there's there's something there's something almost um, I'm not a religious geezer, but there's something almost um, church-like about the quiet that makes the driving a totally different experience for me with electric, but equally extraordinary. Um, having said that, you know, there is nothing to me better than the sound, the right sound of a, an engine behind your head or where it happens to be and the right sound of an exhaust. It just gives you like it gives you this, you know, you can you could just you could just come popping out. Of, and you know, this feeling just come popping out of this of a car and you're just you're just dancing practically because it's been so exhilarating, just the sound of it all and the feeling of it all. But I do, I do feel that when I've driven electric cars, it, it's, I, I've really enjoyed it because I think that the trouble is that you mustn't compare it to how it is driving a, a normal car. 
It's right. a, it's a different right. experience, but e- but can be, I think, equally involving. But like you, but it's more. But you're, you're right. There's no like you know. You, there's buttons and stuff you're pushing. You're not. You haven't got like a shifter and a clutch and all the rest. Yeah. Of it. And that's why I said it. Like you, if you just go and think I'm driving from point A to point B and drop away the fact it's an electric car, it's a pretty amazing experience, you know. So that part. But talk about it, we didn't really go down the road very far. But when you mentioned the M1, I mean, both of us have owned M1s, and I found in LA. I had my M1, let's see, I got it in 1986 or 87. With you first owner? And I, uh, second owner. Okay. Christopher Cross owned it first. <laughs> and, uh, no way, the singer? <laughs> yes. Was that lady? an orange one and a white one. <laughs> was that lady in red? What was Christopher? No, that was Christopher. That was Christopher. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Uh, but, but, you know, I, so I had it from the mid eighties till the early two thousands. And, you know, when you'd pull into a gas station in like 2004, somebody go, when did this come out? You know, like it was <laughs> right. a brand new car. Right. It was so timeless and it's design and everything. It always looks You didn't so get cool. people asking and if it was a DeLorean? Uh, the, you did get some other... <laughs> odd questions sometimes about I would get DeLorean a lot when I drive in the city. I, I could see that for sure because I use the other thing is you sit in it and you look at all the switch gears and everything. And it's all out of kind of a six series, you know, that all the knobs and buttons are kind of lifted out of the road cars. But what I remember is you'd be on the freeway and you'd be in fifth gear and you'd be just kind of run along at low RPM, very quiet this night. And you start to you know, why is everybody looking at you? You'd kind of forget. You were in something very exotic shape because it, it did go very quiet and it was super smooth. At the time we owned it, I had a 930 Porsche, a 79 930, and we had the M1. And those were kind of our two cars. And if we decided to go on a long trip, we were always going in the M1. It was far more comfortable than the 930. The air conditioning worked better. The ride was and a massive the ride trunk. super nice. Yeah, <laughs> a good size trunk. <laughs> well, sure. Yeah, massive in the context of, of sports cars. You True. see, well, I will say True. this: the first, the, the moment I got my M1, I had to change the exhaust because it was. So, I just, I, I like a little bit of hooligan because I'm not really yeah. a hooligan driver. Whereas I'm sure you have yeah. plenty of hooligan because you're doing Pikes Peak. Yeah, no, but I will say, uh, when you went down two or three gears on the freeway and you stood on it that noise and the induction noise behind your head. It was such a special car because of that. And it, it was like a, do, a Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing where it would be very docile, very quiet, everything. And then you'd stand on it and would just open up. And the fact that all of that machinery was directly behind your head, just enhanced the experience completely. I, I, I love that car, man. I mean, I've, I've said this before, but that I, I drove that car on a whim. I had gone down to, a, uh, there was a, like a guy, a exotic car salesman in, in Florida. And I'd gone down to drive, uh, to buy, uh, De Tomaso Mangusta. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're laughing clearly. Cause you know what they're like. Utterly beautiful yes. car, extraordinarily beautiful car. And I sat in it probably for, I think I drove it maybe for four minutes and I said, you know what, man, but my head was touching the windscreen. I said, this is, this is, I can't, I cannot drive this car. And he had two M1s in the showroom. He had a, a blue oh, one wow. and a black one. And I, and I had, I'd always been weirdly intrigued, but not, not 
that interested. And I said, well, I thought well, while I'm here, I'll have a go. And I drove it and, and, and it just changed everything for me. It was, it was almost a religious yeah. experience. No, I felt like it, it was at the time, it was the only German exotic car and it was the first exotic car. You know, it was like, it was so special and so spectacular. And I just, I agree. I, I, the moment I drove it, I drove a couple, I, cause I was doing most of BMW's advertising at the time, uh, through Amarati and Pyrrhus. And so I was shooting nonstop with them and I was in the day of all the M cars coming along. So inevitably we had an M one or two along the way that we would kind of have in the background or something along the way, but I got to drive a few of them. And then with road and track, I went obviously to Germany and drove a few there. So I was hooked on the driving experience already, but you know, in the very beginnings of it, it was not even considered we'd find one in the U S and then when uh, they started uh, federalizing them, uh, that's when I got more interested in trying to find one. So, so have funny you... story about that, since we've got M1 stories, is that, and I'll, I'll be very uh, truthful on the pricing. So I bought <laughs> my car for $57,000. Oh my God. Holy shit. In okay. 19, you've just, just, just depressed so many people, Jeff. <laughs> well, but here's the, here's the interesting thing. So then in the early 2000s, I um, sell the car and uh, I sell it through Auto Week magazine as we used to sell things that were special. And I sold it through Auto Week magazine and I, and I sold it for, I think, $95,000, but it wasn't very easy to sell. It wasn't like it, you know, everybody was jumping on it. So anyway, the car sold and about five or six months later, I get a phone call and it's from the DEA <laughs> and, <laughs> and the DEA and the DEA says, is this Jeff's word? He goes, do you own a BMW M1? And I, I, I said, well, I did own a BMW M1. And he goes, well, um, do you, you don't own the BMW M1? I said, no, I sold it a few months ago. And they said, well, uh, we'll call you right back. So then, so they hang up. So then they call me back and they go, well, you know, sorry to, you know, uh, ask you so many questions, but um, we have detained two people on a train in Texas and they're carrying a hundred thousand dollars and they're, they have an ad out of auto week that they say they're traveling to go see you to pay for your car. <laughs> What a, what a great alibi. <laughs> and I go, number one, I would never take cash from somebody. <laughs> number two, you know, it's like there were so many things wrong with it. But they that was their alibi. They were carrying the Auto Week ad of why they had $100,000 out of and the DNA, DEA had pulled over on the train. So I thought, oh, <laughs> that's, this a, is that's awesome. <laughs> an amazing story. I mean, I would be so, I, how on earth do you like notice this? How someone's carrying a hundred grand in cash in a bag. I, I mean, I don't even. I, I know no how that's, that's that's amazing. So, are there any? That's a great alibi. <laughs> I'm going to use that in the future. Uh, I will always <laughs> use your name as well. Every every, <laughs> every time I'm caught, I'm just bringing this money to Jeff Swart. I'm buying a 906. <laughs> I've got six hundred thousand. One point. I don't know what a 906 costs now. <laughs> this is why I've got these bags in cash. Are there are there are, are there cars that you sort of. I recently bought back, uh, I had a Lancia 03, I had a, all these Group B things and I sold it, one of them was the Lancia 037 and I sold it and I, I just, I deeply regretted selling it and I had, I was lucky enough to be able to buy it back from the, my friend who I sold it to um, 
and it's the only time I've ever bought anything back. Have you? Are there any cars that you feel like you'd wish you could get back? Um, there are. Yeah, I mean, I think both of us. There's a lot of cars that passed through our hands <laughs> through the years. I mean, I had. There's things that you kind of you you like. I think it's interesting because you you start liking something and you really then get obsessed over it and you eventually buy it and then you have it and you drive it around and everything and then you get rid of it and then all of a sudden it's like the coolest possible thing to have after you've gotten rid of it or the most valuable possible thing and it's like it's funny because then you realize, well, when I had my initial thought about this, I was really ahead of the game because now here, <laughs> 10 years later, people are just paying gazillions of dollars to try to get this car. And so you feel like, well, at least I know my intu intuitions are right to buy it. It's just that selling part that was probably wrong. Uh, it's, so, but, it's hilarious because I had exactly it, that conversation two days ago with a friend. I said, listen, if I ever sell a car, then you should buy that car immediately because in six months time, it will be worth five times what I sold it for. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I had a 1967 911R. There were only 20 of them made. And and funny enough, it was chassis number 11. And I've always raced under the number 11. So 11 was definitely a good number for me. And there's only 20 of these things in the world. And they were very lightweight. They had a 906 motor in them. Um, and But they were, they're, they're kind of the holy grail of sport purpose 911s. And I had it for years and drove it on the street and really enjoyed it, but it didn't really tick the boxes of being something entirely different to me. It just felt like a light, lightweight 911. And since then, you know, my car became, my car was one of the last unrestored cars also of the 20. And then it got restored and it ended up getting uh, sold to Europe. And it just, it went up and up like X, like not just, doubling your money it was like you know 10 times kind of thing it was <laughs> it was so crazy how expensive it got but i was um uh, you know that was one car i looked back on but i i feel like what and you've already said it but i feel i just want cars that i can really use and that aren't overly technical so that you know i'm living on the end of a road and the rocky mountains i don't have service places close by i'm not really mechanically involved inclined and i you know i just need something that's kind of easy and gives me like gratification of driving something different and feeling all those things i love about cars and i had a 959 for a while and i shot the road and track cover of doing 200 miles an hour on the autobahn in a 959 i mean that car as a young photographer sitting in the back seat of it going on the Autobahn. We took two tanks of gas just to get over 200 miles an hour. It was crazy. But it was so ingrained in my head of being the coolest car possible. And so eventually when I had a chance, I bought one and I was driving it. And the problem was it was more like flying an airplane where it was $500 an hour to drive it, you know, because <laughs> well, there was always a huge bill out there <laughs> for maintenance possible. So, <laughs> so it just didn't, you know, and now that I'm living here, it just didn't work for me. I just love things. You just get in and you, you got to warm them up a bit, but then once you do that, it's game on. I love it. You need a Mitsubishi Pajero evolution. <laughs> I that is a pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's on. It's on. So you only you own you you you're really a Porsche geezer at this point. Do you own any non-Porsche things, or you're not allowed to say that? 
uh, I have a uh, a Raptor Ford pickup truck. <laughs> <laughs> You're a total hooligan, Zwart. You are a total hooligan. <laughs> it's funny because I guess I, I was... Um, I was very focused on, as I said, the Group B thing, and then I sold it all. I was like, oh, I've had enough. I just want to, you know, I want to have easier cars. And then I gradually started buying stuff and, and, and but buying really disparate things that just kind of give me a very, because you, you spoke about this a lot, the idea of different experiences. And I feel like that's a really important thing, at least for me, um, in the cars I own, the idea that, that uh yeah, like everything is just a totally... The one experience I've not had, and I wonder if you'd be interested in this, is I have this deep... And maybe it's because I'm kind of approaching my dotage. <laughs> but <laughs> I have that. this deep <laughs> urge for like a super luxury car, but like a Aston Martin Lagonda from the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure that would work in Colorado so well. But. What's really funny, honestly... You are living in a zone of interest of cars that virtually every car you mention, my head goes back. I shot that in the day, <laughs> you know, and I shot the Laganda, and it that thing is a boat. It oh, is I know it's a big, huge boat. It's like it's like a driving an aircraft carrier, you know. It is huge, and I shot that. But so many of the cars you mentioned, I think you mentioned that little day Tommaso the other day too. Yeah, and oh, I, I shot that in no uh, Aguara. Yeah, shot that in the day. Did you? I mean, I've, oh, you yeah, probably I've shot. Got, you probably shot. But did you shoot a red one from the factory? Uh, no, it was silver, I think. But you see, here's why I did everything. Did you For drive 20, that car? I drove most of them, and so in 1983. I came up with an idea for Road and Track magazine that we would do an exotic car calendar. I ended up shooting the exotic car calendar for 20 years. Of those 20 years, maybe half of them, I went around the world every, for two weeks every year and would go and start in Japan and end up back in Detroit and shoot the latest, greatest from every factory. I shot 13 cars, one for the cover and then 12 for the months. And so I ticked, I, I did all it. You're, you're 220. I mean, that's the most beautiful car, even today. You know, oh, I totally agree. That car, that car is slippery and beautiful. And I mean, the new Pagani they announced oh, yesterday. They're talking they, about the utopia, man. It's a crime against society. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, but it is really beautiful. It the really, Pagani? It's, it's got that the new one is just so beautiful shape, but it doesn't hold anything to like the 220 and i you know i was in the f40 f50 the all, all the gto days you know i was in all these renditions of ferraris and lamborghinis and i even did the isderas and the, i love the, the isdera uh, man i love the yeah, that's yeah, my so, great sadness is i never could i never bought an isdera imperatore the is that oh yeah what was that to like to drive Oh, they were cool. You know, what was funny is the coach works were absolutely beautiful, but generally speaking, the running gear was something very familiar, like sure. Mercedes or what BMW or whatever. So the drivability of them were really quite nice, but the the uh, the look of them and the periscopes and the mirrors and funny places and all the wacky things they did. And I worked with Gambala, you know, I'd shoot with Gambala for road and track and you must have driven the wacky a vector. things he'd do. You must have and, driven, did you drive a vector? Uh, oh, vector. Gary Waggert and I, it was very funny because Vector car was, you know, it was in Southern California and 
it was always claiming to be the world's fastest car. Well, road and track was noteworthy for doing the world's fastest cars every year. And every year they would invite the vector car vector, but it would never show up. So, but, <laughs> but I shot a number of vectors through the years. And, and, but you, it's just funny when you talk about the era, the launches and all these things, because I've shot the exotic car calendar, literally from 83 to 2003, I cover everything you're talking about. So, so, okay. I have to ask, did you drive the Guara? I believe I, I, I honestly don't remember that that well. I believe that. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I don't remember. And I, I kind of don't think I did because I kind of remember when, you know, the, the drive out of the factory and these things, because, you know, it was, I was a, you know, fairly young photographer and to get thrown the keys of, these cars and get to drive outside the factory. It was it was pretty memorable. Let's say. <laughs> I so, imagine. It was good. That's amazing. I mean, I, I will say that for me, the vector, just from a design standpoint, I feel like is 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 a really, really outstanding piece. Of, I mean, the back end is a bit slab, the back is a bit slab like, but as a whole as a whole, it's I think it's an amazing piece of kit just just from the looks i know it's like a three it was a three speed like chrysler slush box or something <laughs> that was in there that would, but but the design of it i just always loved and 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 look i'm clearly biased about the 220 but i do think of all the supercars of the 90s um if you didn't know anything about brands and you just saw like an eb110 and they're 40 or whatever it's 959 yeah. and all that stuff drive in and 220 the 220 still is such an audacious design i mean the other cars are beautiful and interesting but they're evolutionary and i felt like the 220 is just is sort of revolutionary for in the way it looks and also it's just a total trousers changer to for me at least to drive (laughs) oh i i remember it was a very um not the most linear power delivery (laughs) (laughs) you you know what's funny man is i was driving it like not three or four days ago and i was explaining i had a friend in the car and i was explaining to him how I find that turbo cars of the 90s are really interesting. I, for a long time, I hated turbo cars. I had, a, had an 87 uh, 930 slant nose, factory slant nose, terrible four-speed. I hated it. And I was like, I'm never going to drive a turbo car. And then, I, and then I started buying all these turbo cars. And I find it's sort of like um, <laughs> the only analogy I can make about turbo cars is kind of like having sex. And you know the orgasm is approaching. <laughs> <laughs> Because, because, but, but it's, it's not, it, but because you, you can feel the turbo, it's not like it's a binary on off switch. I yeah. find with the 220, yeah. you can feel the, the turbo kind of beginning to spool up. So, you know, it's coming. And so, it, and it becomes this glorious intellectual pastime in your mind, at least of trying to keep this turbo on, you know, keep the car on spool, spooling up kind of on boost. And, and so you're, you're having this kind of constant conversation with the car that you don't have with a, a normally aspirated car. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good description. And it's just, it's so interesting to me of just how that whole thing has been refined. And I, I when you're mentioning the 220, also the EB110, you know, the 220 is in the beauty category of the EB110 was in the sophistication, you know, four turbochargers, all this craziness and kind of not that pleasant of a looking car. And then the 220 was just spectacularly beautiful and actually fairly basic underneath everything. I mean, it's a so. very crude car, the 220. It's funny, I think the yeah. problem for the 220, I think, is because it looks so extraordinary and so sinuous and sophisticated and beautiful, I think people are kind of, it's a very 
crude, but thoroughly, for me at least, thoroughly enjoyable experience. But I think that that you, you assume because it's this beautiful thing, it's going to be kind of, I don't know, like similarly beautiful to drive or, or easy in a way to drive. Yeah. I, I just remember, I mean, obviously a long time ago, so that I drove, but I remember when you settled in them, you felt like you were in something really big. Like you looked around and go, well, I don't even know where the front corner and the rear corner is. Right. This. It just looks awesome. So <laughs> yeah, cool. I mean, it's a. Uh, but it was one of those cars. I remember the faster you drove it, the smaller it felt. You know, right. it kind of came alive in that way. Yeah, that's exactly true. The other thing I will say about the 220, it's kind of, I feel like it's like landing one of those early fighter jets that needed the parachute to deploy out the back. Like, you, <laughs> like when you when you when I'm driving and the boost comes on, I'm looking way ahead to think, okay, I have to start braking a lot sooner than I think I have to start braking because it's these are. 20 year old break, 30 year old breaks. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, no, look, that's an awesome car. Jeff, it, it, uh, it's been such a joy, man, talking to you. I mean, I feel like we could probably go for another hour at least because you're, I mean, I'd love to have you back because you're just this endless font of extraordinary, glorious stories about cars. But I, I just, oh, well. <laughs> well, no, it's just, it's great, uh, great to join up with you and actually talk instead of, uh, texting and things back and forth. So, but I, I will say your sensibilities about photography and, and your cars you've chosen and everything and uh, Viva Bastardo is so it's such, they're all on point in my mind. So it's fun to share that with you for sure. Well, thanks again, man. And look, if you're ever in New York, I insist we'll have a cup of coffee together. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, when that day comes, we'll, we'll make most of it. <laughs> Again, though, man, thank you so much, Jeff. It's been a real joy, man. And, and honestly, quite a privilege because you are, uh, I mean, as I'm sure you know, you've led this extraordinary life. And it's, and it's, and it's, I'm really happy that people get to hear some of your stories. So thanks, man. Uh, well, thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And I'll look forward to all the other ones that you do in this category. So right. good deal. Take care, <laughs> thanks man. so much, man.